This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Ralph Mama grew up in a loving home in the West African country of Benin, but he was always tormented by the feeling that his father loved him just a little less than he loved his other children. Ralph thought that he was just unlucky. All that changed when he learned that he was the son of another man who'd waited 20 years for the day his son would return to him. It was one of the most joyous moments of Ralph's young life. Rolf Mama joins us today to talk about this story and about the sacrifices that people made for him along the way, how fortune smiled on him along his path from Benin to Illimantic as a distinguished professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. It's why his memoir is called Fortune's Favorite Child. He says, we all benefit from small acts of kindness, many from strangers we'll never see again. We just need to notice. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Ralph Mama is a distinguished professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's also the author of Why Monkeys Live in Trees, winner of the 2008 National Multicultural Children's Book Award, and most recently of this memoir, Fortune's Favorite Child. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Could you tell us about the, uh, tell us more about the title of the book, Why Fortune's Favorite Child? Well, uh, the inspiration for the title comes from the the account my my mother and my adoptive mother gave me of the custody battle between them and my father. Uh, because um, when I was born, my father came bearing a, a ram for the naming ceremony, and he was turned away by my mother. My mother told him, this is not your son. <laughs> and my father went to the palace of the king and laid a complaint against my mother. So the king summoned all three, I mean, my mother, my father, and my adoptive mom, to his court and uh, listened to them and to gave them three days to settle this dispute amicably. But when they went back three days later, they were still bickering, and the king got very angry and said he was going to kill me by invoking death upon me. So he, he commanded the, uh, the priest to bring the calabash of doom from the sacred chamber. And all he had to do was take the lid off, touch his tongue to the contents of the calabash of doom, and then invoke death upon me. But at the very last moment, as he lifted the lid, his eldest wife jumped up and snatched the, the calabash of doom from him, uh, pleading with him not to kill me because I was innocent. I was barely seven days old. So when I was told the story, I asked my, my mother and my adoptive mother what had moved that woman to, to save my life because women were not allowed to touch the calabash of doom. And my elder mother said, uh, you know, because you are Fortune's uh, favorite child, that woman was inspired by God, and you are Fortune's favorite child. My goodness. Mm -hmm. The reason I love that story so much is it actually speaks to so many of the other stories that, that you tell about your life in the book, mm -hmm. because it blends this sense of a, a very re real thing that is happening with with very human people, mm -hmm. and this sense of magic. It's, it's a story that 
seemingly could have been told thousands of years ago mm. as an apocryphal tale, as a tale that never truly happened, but it, mm. it was your life. It was truly in, your life. Indeed, indeed. As a matter of fact, when uh, after I was told the story, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it was my story. Mm. I simply couldn't believe it. And we'll talk a bit more about about stories that perhaps you can't believe and about the power of dreams and magical realism in your book. But mm-hmm. I, I want you to talk first about this important story that, that leads your book about the search for your, your father. Mm-hmm. When, when you start the story, you're a young man in Benin. You're, you're a good student. You love to read. Mm-hmm. But you have this illness, and, mm-hmm. and you don't know what the illness is, and the doctor doesn't know what the illness is. Mm-hmm. And it leads you on this search that uh, eventually leads you to the man who who truly was your father. Can yeah. can you explain a bit to our audience about that about that path you went on? Well, I, I um, about three days after my twentieth birthday, I had this dream that I was bitten by a mad dog, and out of nowhere, this man dressed in white came to me, and he took care of me. So I wanted him to take me with him, but he said, no, not now, not here. Um, and uh, a few days later, I, I was taken ill, you know, a pounding headache all the time and no sleep at night. So I went to the school district physician, and he told me I had to get out of school. It really was the death of a dream for me. Uh, I knew not how I got home that day because I was so inexpressibly sad. He said you needed to leave school because, because the school that, school was the cause of your problem. Yeah, because I was um, mentally broken. <laughs> I was on the brink of a mental breakdown, and I should just leave school and forget about becoming, you know, a writer, an ambassador. So I went home and 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 you know told my mom, and my mom said, "But what does the doctor know? <laughs> he has spoken, but God has not spoken." And shortly thereafter, I was, you know, I traveled with my the one I had called father all my life, who wasn't my father. I traveled with him to Boykon, where my adoptive mom, my mother's elder sister. And her husband lived. Her husband was the first father figure I had ever known. He was an infinitely generous man. And I was taken to this healer, um, and he told my my adoptive mom, your son is sick not with the sickness of the body, but with the sickness of the spirit. And he went on to tell the story of how I was separated from my father. And I just it didn't make any sense to me because I had no frame of reference. And I said, what is this man talking about? My father is not... Because he said my father was a famous preacher, a man of prayer. I said, no, my father is a truck driver. And he's not famous by any stretch of the imagination. So it to me, it was just nonsense. But my my aunt, my adoptive mom, was nodding and smiling. and said, my goodness, what is this all about? And then um, the healer gave my mom, he said, well, the only cure for this sickness of the spirit is a reunion with his father, who has waited 20 years. He has prayed and fasted and wept 
all these years, and the only cure is that you should take this boy back to him. Mm. And um, I had a miraculous recovery just as the, the healer had predicted seven days after my visit. And uh, I felt, because I wasn't going to, to take the college nurse's exam, but I felt, all of a sudden, I felt so, I mean, I felt so well, and so I was on top of the world, and I said, well, I'm going to take this exam. So I went back, and I had, I talked, I had to go to the physician and ask permission <laughs> to take the exam. <laughs> well, if he had told me no, I don't know what I would have done to him that day. Yeah. <laughs> Things may have turned out quite differently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, your, your story, and I just want to read briefly, mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. when you uh, come to the point where you're just about to meet your father, yeah. um, which, and again, you're 20 years old. You're not a very young man. You're already preparing for, for going to school. Yeah. Um, you write, deep in my heart, I knew the day that had been appointed for my encounter with the one who gave me life had come and there would be no turning back. To those around me and to countless millions all over the world, this was just another day. And the sun blazing in the heavens was the same sun that had risen and set for thousands of years past and that would rise and set for thousands of years to come. To me, however, that day was like no other. Never in my life had there been a day brighter with sunshine, more beautiful, more full of promise. It would stand forever in majestic splendor as the morning star of my life, a rainbow of dazzling light above the storm clouds of my earthly existence and would inspire me with faith and hope as I reached for my dreams." It's a beautiful it's a beautiful paragraph and a beautiful passage, but I, I love the notion that in this moment that you are about to um is in essence change your life and your fortune. Yeah. You're thinking about the countless millions of others for whom it's just another day. Yeah. Could you just talk about that feeling that you had at the time? You know, all my life I really had had this complex of the unwanted child because I tried everything I could think of to gain my father's love or the love of the one I had thought was my father. But I was, I was never good enough, you know. And uh, so I, I went through life with my head bowed as though I owed the world an apology for being alive. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And I was about to, to meet my father face to face. And the healer's words were still in my, very much in my mind. He had prayed and fasted and wept for me. <laughs> no, it was to me. It was the most magical moment. It mm. really was. We're yeah. we're talking with uh, with author and poet and storyteller Ralph Mama. Uh, his book is called Fortune's Favorite Child. It tells the story of his life and his travels from West Africa that eventually ended up him up here in Connecticut at Eastern Connecticut State University. Um, we, we talked about the magical realism uh, that I- infuses your book, about the dreams and the stories and the sometimes incredibly unlikely things that, that we've, we've just heard. H- how large a role does the idea of magical realism have in your life, but also in, in the life of, of Africa and where you grew up? I mean, when I, uh, when I teach uh, African literature, I, my, one of my favorite books is The Famished Road. And it's full of magical realism. So I tell my, I tell the student, I say, look, magical realism is really the blending of the magical with the ordinary. And that's what, that's what makes my story so interesting to me. Because 
remember at the beginning when my my mother, when she made her first attempt to run away from my father, and she she went to live with um, with her elder sister, who later became my adoptive mom. Her sister told her, "Look, go into the forest, the sacred forest, and go to that tree, and there's you find a bottle there." Lift it up. If it's heavy, then you won't go back. But if it's light, then you should go back and you know rejoin your your husband. So my mother went to the sacred forest. She was afraid, of course. She was trembling like a leaf. She said, "Shall I go or not?" And she lifted the bottle. It was light as an eggshell. That was how she was able to go back. Yeah. If she hadn't gone back, I wouldn't have been born. <laughs> and no one knew who put that bottle there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> the bottle was not planted there by any, any person. But, so when you tell a story like that, and, and this other stories that you've already told us today and the stories in your book, to Western audiences, to people who've, who've grown up without that storytelling tradition, do you feel as though there's a barrier sometimes for your students at Eastern, for, for others in America? Because we don't see the world that way. We don't let magic in to our lives uh-huh. in the way that you just described. Well, if you tell the story right, they will suspend disbelief uh, <laughs> and come into the magical circle with you. You know, because the power of the story is in the telling. If you tell it right, you're going to win over your audience yeah. in, a, in a minute. But but do you think that, that, that we, in, in America perhaps, yeah. think too rationally? We, th- we think too, too straight ahead. We only believe what we can see with our eyes. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Um, I think many... All the people here have lost the the sense of the mysterious. You know, it was Einstein who wrote in uh, one of his essays on um, on mystery. His he, the, the entitled, I mean, the, the essay is uh, on mystery, and he said the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead, and his eyes are dimmed. Um, I think we should try and get back to this sense of, of wonder, this sense of marvel, because, you see, as, the, as uh, Ben Oakley points out in one of his poems, in everything the unseen moves, we had to be alive to that. Mm. You know, and miracles happen in our lives every day. But in the rush and roar of, of daily life, we, we, we don't take any notice. And it's really a shame. It's a big loss, really. And sometimes when we, when we think of the mysterious, we think of it in terms of bad luck. 
Right, because uh, your your stories are about a roller coaster that we're on, in which parts of your life are are very good mm-hmm. and parts of your life are very troubling, and, and that's that's all of our lives. But yeah. I think often when we in the West think of mystery, mm-hmm. we think of w- why are the fates uh, casting down on <laughs> me now? Because, it, but but we we tend not to think yeah. of things mysterious as being positive coming we, into our lives. We have to learn to count our blessings every day. Mm. There was a poet who once said, you know, we have to count our blessings every day and call them by name, one by one. Mm. Because if you, if you cultivate a sense of gratitude, we won't be complaining all the time. And when you complain, really nothing good happens to you. We have to, to celebrate, celebrate the good things in our lives. We're talking today with Ralph Mama, and his book is called Fortune's Favored Child, and it's his memoir of his life. And uh, he's a storyteller, of course, a storyteller who is at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's the author of other books, including Why Monkeys Live in Trees. We're going to continue our conversation and talk a bit more about mystery in life uh, here on Where We Live, coming up right after this break. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, we're talking with storyteller Rolf Mama. He's a distinguished professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's the author of the book, Why Monkeys Live in Trees, the winner of the 2008 National Multicultural Children's Book Award, and most recently, a memoir called Fortune's Favored Child that tells the stories of his own life. If you'd like to join us, 860-275-7266. You can follow along on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, there have been times in your life when you doubted your ability to master the English language or to, to be a teacher. Can you talk about the drive that you had as a young person to, to master English and to also share what you know as a teacher? Well, I mean, the moment I was introduced to the English language, I, was, I fell in love with it, really, because it was exotic. It sounded beautiful. It was new. So I really, really buckled down, and, and, and I would memorize hundreds of words, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, uh, and um, in my uh, junior year, I placed first on the National English Language Test, and I was everybody's hero, <laughs> you know. And it felt great. <laughs> it felt so great. Good for my ego, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I wanted to do it again in my, my senior year. And then I fell ill, mm-hmm. you see. And for the first time, I thought as though I was never going to be able to to make anything of my life. I, was, I wasn't going to amount to anything, especially after the, the doctor told me to get out of school. And, you know, get um, a job requiring no mental exertion. I had never felt so sad in my life. Mm. And then the, the healer told me that if I could, if I were, the cure for my disease was to reunion with my father. And I passed the exam, I passed the college entrance exam. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I had only three weeks to prepare for it. I missed the whole uh, second semester. 
people had given up on me, except, except my teachers. So I passed it, and I went to college. And there was, you know, it was a big class. And I felt as though I was just a, a small fish right? <laughs> in a big sea. Well, and this happens to a lot of students everywhere yeah. in the world, right? Yeah. They're, they're yeah. maybe the, they're the chosen one. They're yeah. the smartest kid in their yeah. town, and they go to big university, and now and they, they feel they're one of a million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if the day, uh, you know, um, my favorite professor came in, you know, he I couldn't understand what was going on because I had come all prepared to take notes and so on. But he spent the first 15 minutes just joking, cracking jokes, and everybody was laughing, including myself. But I couldn't believe it. I was, I kept wondering, am I in a lecture, you know, room at a university? Am I, you know, at a show? <laughs> <laughs> But then it came to me that what he was really trying to teach us then was the greatest lesson any teacher can teach uh, his or her student. That the bread, that that humor is the yeast in the bread Mm. of instruction. And it's something you still do. (laughs) I have embraced it. I try to make my students laugh. I tell stories sometimes. I get them, I make, I dance to them, or I make them dance. Sometimes just do something, whatever I can do to make them relax and, and enjoy it. Because whatever you do, you have to find a way to make it fun. Yeah. If not, then it's not worth it. And that's an interesting lesson, too, for, for someone who who grew up with his nose buried in books, wanting to have a career of a yeah. certain way to learn so early on that yeah. that a big part of, of what being a teacher is is not about knowing everything in the book. Right? No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Well, one of the stories you, you tell in, in your book is how hard you worked to get to university and how disappointed you were when this was interrupted by the government's requirement for national service. Yes. What, what was the national service you were put into? <laughs> well, the... The government decided we were going to become a socialist country. Of course, it was just a mere frothing of words, really. (laughs) 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 And and they they changed the educational system, uh, at least the calendar. They changed the books. They removed all the books that uh, we had been using. They put nothing in their place. (laughs) And we had to go and work on the farm you know, uh, from you know a certain period of the during a certain period of the year, and and to me, I could I, I thought it was a big waste of time. How could we? How could we? You know, be asked to go and 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 work on the farm while we, you know, while our professors are waiting and there's so many books to read. I couldn't believe it. I was very resentful. And as part of what they call the national service, we had to undergo military training. And after that, we'll go and teach, you see. And uh, I remember the day we had to go on to on the, uh, we had to learn how to shoot. And I was, <laughs> I was dead. <laughs> you, this is not what you'd signed up for. So I told the story um, a few days before the experience, which I thought I wasn't going to survive. I told the story of uh, how goat came face to face with uh, lion. 
in the jungle and survived to tell the, the tale. Could you tell us the story? Because this is an important story. Can well, I mean, Goat just, you know, he, his mother sent him on an errand uh, to uh, the house of a neighbor. And because Goat was so self-absorbed and so easily distracted, he started wandering about with his nose in the air until he suddenly found himself face to face with with lion. And lion said, I'm going to eat you and eat you and eat you. And he said, please don't eat me. Please don't eat me. And lion said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm in a very good mood today. And because I'm in a very good mood, I should, I should give you a, a chance of escape. Uh, can you say, make three statements about our encounter right now? Three statements that no one can dispute? Well, Goat said, <laughs> this is a very serious matter, and I need to think. So he thought, and he thought, and he thought, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what is it? What is it? He said, if you let me go now, and I go back to my house, and I tell my mother and my brothers and my sisters and my neighbors that I met you face to face, but you didn't eat me, let me go, no one will believe it. And I said, it seems to me you are very smart, good. What's your next statement? He said, well, if you let me go now and you go back to your house and you tell your wife and your children and your friends that you met me face to face, but you didn't eat me, you let, let me go, no one will believe it. Right on, like, uh, um, uh, Lion said. Yeah. What is your final statement? Well, before we, you and I met this morning, you have had a big, delicious meal. And that was why you gave me a chance. And I said, yes, indeed. <laughs> you are a very smart goat. Go home then. Go home now. But don't ever come back to the jungle. <laughs> For if you do, I'm going to eat you and eat you and eat you. <laughs> And everybody wanted me to tell that story again and again and again. Even as we were making our way toward the, the shooting range, I couldn't tell it because I was terrified. I could only think of myself just like a drowning man. I couldn't think of, no I couldn't think of nothing else. And then I survived the experience. <laughs> just, just like goat, <laughs> just, just like a goat. You, you, and even then, you, you, you drew on stories. You, you drew on storytelling as part of a way to get you through difficult situations. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Well, why, why does it help? Why, why did you turn to that? Because clearly, your your classmates, your friends, who wanted you to tell the story, maybe they didn't have that in them. Maybe they weren't storytellers necessarily, indeed. but you were. How did you know that that was what you you wanted to be? Well, it's really, you feel this hunger, you know. But I must say, if I had not been told stories as a child, because when I was little, you know, there was no TV, no radio, really. <laughs> I had no books. But there was storytelling every night after the evening meal. And as I and my brothers and sisters leaning forward with light in our eyes. I mean, I was serving an apprenticeship. You see, Wordsworth tells us that the, 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 the child is father of the man. You know, I was a lover of stories when I was little. 
And now, in my adulthood, I'm a storyteller. You see? So stories are very powerful. They are a journey and a joining. And when you tell a story, you really take your audience on a journey of discovery and self-discovery. Mm. You get them to think about certain things, to, to, to re-examine their own lives, because the unexamined life is not worth living, as Tino Achebe reminds us. Mm. And stories really are our only hope. And when we depart this world, what do we leave behind? Our stories. And what kind of story do we want people to tell about us when we're gone? That's a question we each of us must answer to his or her own satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It, th- this storytelling tradition that you're a part of is is very old and very long. Mm-hmm. And the the notion of, of the oral s- storyteller is mm-hmm. also something that perhaps in America we don't treasure as much today as it is treasured in, in other places. We we think of stories as either something we sit and watch on a screen, mm-hmm. right? This is a, a, a mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. or a television show mm-hmm. or something that we read in a book. Mm-hmm. And while we are surrounded by great storytellers in mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. we tend not to value it in the same way that 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 perhaps your tradition does. Do you, do you, do you find that? Well, I mean... The notion that you just tell a story off the yeah. top of your head and just and just and pass it along that way as opposed to writing it down. Because, you see, ours was a, an essentially oral tradition. Remember, I mean, the uh, our languages in Benin were not really put down in writing until the 70s. Can you believe that? So storytelling, oral storytelling was the most important form of uh, the most important tool of instruction and and entertainment, you see. Uh, But here in the United States, there's a paradox. I mean, we think of the average American as someone who doesn't really care about oral storytelling. But that's not true because there's a revival of storytelling in America today. And in in Britain, in France, in Canada, all over the Western world, there's a a revival of the storytelling tradition. And here in the United States, you have so many festivals, so many storytelling festivals, so many conferences and so many seminars, so many awards. I mean, the only storytelling festival in Berlin started uh, maybe five, six years ago. And we don't have any storytelling awards. Yeah. <laughs> but but here you're right, and even within yeah. the last several years, yeah. this has become a, a new trend in the indeed, United States. Indeed. Why do you think that we're trying to recapture that? What what do you think is drawing Americans uh, in a new way to the oral tradition? Because of the power of the, the power of, of storytelling, the power of stories to inspire us, to entertain us, and to instruct us. I mean, think of the the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, there were those stories were told as oral stories, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm so grateful for this, for this, for this re- revival of the storytelling tradition, because it's 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 the best, it's the best thing that, the best tool, to to to, to teach each other, to sing to each other, to uh, to make us look at the natural spectacle from different perspectives, mm-hmm. and to remind us all that mankind is one color. 
which is the color of blood. Because stories remind us that we are all human, that we, we have the same dreams, the same fears. We share the same tears. And we are vulnerable to the passing of time, to death and disease. We want the best for ourselves and our children. And these, these similarities transcend all the other differences we have. Mm. You know, so that to me is what makes stories so powerful. I'm wondering if you can tell us before our next break another story from your book, and it's about another time in your life in which something bad happened and something good came out of it. Um, you were in France, yes. and you were robbed of something very important to you, something very, very important to your career. Can you just briefly tell us the story of what happened? Well, I went to France on my way back from, from Germany. My uh, English teacher, my favorite English teacher, and her husband invited me, you know, to Grenoble. So I was on my way to Grenoble, and I had to change the money. I had to change Dutch, Dutch marks into French francs. And I left my suitcase and my briefcase somewhere at the airport because I thought this was France. No thieves, no beggars. Who will take my bag? <laughs> and when I came back, there was this yawning void. <laughs> Where I had put my briefcase <laughs> and my briefcase. It's the worst feeling. So that's, that's, um, I was robbed bare. And in my briefcase, I had the rough draft of my thesis. That was the only copy I had. And uh, it was just, it was the, the, the most, terrible thing that had ever happened to me then. But that night when I went, when I finally made my way to the, to Grenoble, my teacher's uh, father-in-law told the story of this boy who looked in the mirror and saw a boy and frowned at him and the boy frowned, frowned back. And soon they were involved in this Fisticuffed in this fist fight. <laughs> okay. And an old man came by and he asked him, What's the matter? Why are you fighting? Yeah, I'm at this boy in this middle. He's making fun of me. I don't like it. I don't. He said, Oh, I think there was a misunderstanding. <laughs> Dry your tears and smile at him and see what happens. So he did. And the boy smiled back. He said, Shake hands with him and see what happens. And they shook hands. And the old man said, you see, he was just, he was not a bad person. He was a friend waiting for you to come to him. And the, my, my teacher's father-in-law told me, look, if you smile at life, life will smile back at you. And that was something I needed to hear then. How did it happen? <laughs> it's magical. It's, 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 I'm 14 favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that story has really inspired me. Even today, I still think of it. Because I try to get up every day 
when I get up every in the morning, I put a smile on my face, and I try to be a good example to those around me, but most importantly, to my children and to my students, mm. because that's the best thing we can ever give our children a good example. Mm. And that story has really inspired me. It inspired you to <laughs> to to write a fresh. Uh, a fresh piece for your for your studies, and, and it, it seems like it all turned out well. It turned out well. I mean, <laughs> I wrote it within two months. I was supposed to have written it. It, has, it was supposed to have taken a whole year. But I rewrote it in two months, and it got the highest distinction in the history of the university. <laughs> it was just amazing, and I'm infinitely Fortunate. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the fortunate and the amazing life of Ralph Mama. Uh, the book is called Fortune's Favorite Child. He's a distinguished professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. When we come back, we'll talk more about his stories and stories that he has upcoming. You can join us at Where We Live on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, since 2007, the number of households that rent in Connecticut has risen from 30 to 34 percent. But for many, renting still isn't an option. There just aren't enough properties out there, meaning those that do exist are too expensive to afford. We're going to look at the impact of high rental costs and find out what's being done to change this. It's coming up on Monday's show, Where We Live. Today, we're visiting with Ralph Mama, who's a distinguished professor of English at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's the author of several books, including Why Monkeys Live in Trees, which is the winner of the 2008 National Multicultural Children's Book Award. Most recently, his memoir is called Fortune's Favored Child, and we're talking about some of the stories in this book. Uh, earlier, when we were talking about the story of, of finding your father at the age of 20, you, you mentioned uh, the role that your elder mother played. I'm wondering if you can explain who she was and why she was so important to you. Well, she was my mother's elder sister, and she had never had any children of her own. But you see, when she adopted me, and I was three months old, she had no idea she was going to be childless. And that woman covered me with love, really, and provided me with everything a child could need. And she kept, she, 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 she kept telling me, look, you will never want for anything. You will never lack anything in your life so long as I'm, I'm alive. And that woman, she was, she was more to me than a mother, really. Mm. And um, I brought her over to the United States in 2001. And that was my last chance, really. Because she, she came and spent about a month and a half here. And then we flew back home together. And within six months... You know, she was taken ill. She slipped and fell and broke her hip, and she never recovered. Mm -hmm. And um, she died on the 28th of October, 2002, you know. And um, I remember when I, I went home in 2002 for the summer, and I got to the, to the airport, 
and I realized I had left my passport behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! So I went back home, <laughs> and, and uh, I knew she would she would know. But so I tried to to seek to sneak in and get my passport. And I said, "Ralph, is that you?" I said, "Yes." Oh, you must have forgotten something. <laughs> You didn't want her to know. And the lie I had wanted to tell her, that I wanted to hug her one more time. I just couldn't be myself to tell it. I said, Ralph! And she told me one more time what she had told me almost all my life. If your organ were, were not attached to your body, you would leave it somewhere. Somebody would take it and run away. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was as though I had to hear her voice one more time. Mm because she died shortly thereafter. And I'm working on a book right now entitled uh, Quiet Miracles. And uh, the story, that story is one of the stories in the book. It's going to come out as an e-book entitled Quiet Miracles. But that story is entitled A Gift, a Gift of Our Lady. Because I pray to the Virgin Mary every day, and uh, she, has, she has made many miracles in my life including my son's my son's terrible accident. Yeah, I, I heard you, you speak of this um, around the time that your book was published. Yeah. Um, you spoke at Eastern Connecticut State University where you teach. And before you read from your book, you told a story about what had happened just, just after uh, the book was published. Your, yeah. your son was in a terrible auto accident. Yes, he, he's a basketball player, and he was returning from Massachusetts where he had taken part in a... In a tournament and he it was on Father's Day and he texted me to say Dad I'm fifteen minutes away from my coach's house. That was where I was going to get him. And I got into my car and drove to Norwich. Five minutes from from the place where I was supposed to take to pick him up, I came upon the scene of an accident. I had no idea my son was in the accident. Mm. And I Got out of the car. I just his just his image just flashed upon my mind, and I knew he was in there. So I rushed forward, and I saw his uh, some of his teammates. Where's my son? I asked. They said, "Oh, he's in the car." In the car. So I rushed over, and there he was. He was there was a, a, a trickle of blood, really blood trickling down one side of his face, and he was unconscious. I thought he was dead. I had got there before the police. I got there before the the ambulance. I had never, I had never cried without shedding tears until that day. Mm. And then he was rushed to, to Bacchus Hospital, and from there, airlifted to Hartford Hospital. That night, I had a dream. I saw a woman dressed in white, taking care of him. I knew that was a game changer. You know, the doctor had told me in the emergency room that any swelling of the brain would be a game changer. Hmm. But that dream I had, when I saw this woman, she was, her face was turned away from me. So I didn't see her face. I couldn't see her face. But she was dressed in sparkling white, radiant as a star. And she was taking care of my son. When I woke up in the morning, I went down on my knees and prayed in Thanksgiving. And then when I, I, I had a storytelling engagement at a school in Tolland, I went there. I didn't feel like going. 
and they were doing anything. But I went over for the sake of the children because they had been waiting for months. I, I told stories, we sang and we danced, and then I told them. And the outpouring of, of love and sympathy was just overwhelming. Then on my way to the hospital, I felt this, this, this ex-fervor. I wanted to bear witness. I went to the hospital, and there were many people waiting the, in, the waiting, in, the, in the waiting room, bearing flowers. Most of them were in tears. And I told them, don't cry. My son, Rahim, will pull through. Just you wait and see. I told them about the dream. Mm. And within 10 days, he was let go. <laughs> and the doctor, the lead doctor, was named Dr. Joseph. Dr. Joseph. And he told me, this was a miracle. This is a miracle. So I told the story. Um, I wrote the story down, as, uh, and I entitled it. It was a beautiful day. Hmm. Yes. When you tell the story, hmm. it, it, you make it sound as though a miracle happened. Yes, indeed. And do you think that that, that that is what it was? Do you think it is its fortune? Do you think it is, it is a miracle? What, what do you think it is? If you have faith, you can only see it as a miracle. If you, if you don't have faith, you call it a coincidence. But to me, it was a miracle. Mm. I mean, I, I pray to the Virgin Mary every day. The doctor told me, that recovery, if it came, would be very slow. But within 10 days, my son was 100%. Hmm. Well, to me, it's, it's a miracle. You see, if you have faith, you don't need any proof. If you don't have faith, no proof will do. And, and you said to me before we started talking that, that both of your sons are now off to college. Yes. And, and yes. I'm sure that you're very, you're very proud of that. And my daughters, you know, I have five children, and um, I feel so blessed whenever I think of them. One is uh, a teacher at, in Boston. In, in Boston. Uh, she has won many teaching awards. Uh, my second eldest, Bibi, has just graduated from How uh, Howard. She's uh, an actress, and she's going to go on a tour uh, within the next two weeks with a, with a theater company. Jamila is a singer. Uh, she's also at Howard. And the twin boys, Rahman is at, um, Rahman is at George, uh, George Washington University. Rahim is at uh, Plymouth State University. They're beautiful. They're smart. They're kind. And I just, I just feel infinitely blessed. How does the story of, of, Finding your father so late in life, how does that influence your your fatherhood? What what you do as a father? I try to be the best father I can to them. I try to be a good example to them. And I, whenever I call them, I always tell them, "I love you." And to hear them say, "I love you, Dad," to me is the most beautiful thing that. I can happen to anybody, really. So more of your stories are coming out. You've got two two collections coming out, Quiet Miracles and Burning Candles. Yes. Um, I wish I had time to talk about all of the stories that were coming out. Um, 
But I want to thank you for sharing some stories with us thank uh, you, today and for sharing this, uh, um, this beautiful memoir. Raul Mama's book is called Fortune's Favorite Child. Um, I've heard from some of your students who've uh, learned with you at uh, Eastern Connecticut State University, and I know that they uh, enjoy your classes very much. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you for coming in. Thank you, John. Thank you. Our program today was produced by Betsy Kaplan. Thanks to Kion Wolf, our technical producer. Thanks also to our digital editor, Heather Brandon, the executive producer of Where We Live, is Katie Tolarski. I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live. Have a lovely weekend. I'm <laughs> your